My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. I'm coming to you from the Hickson campus of Stewart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. And we'd love to have you come and visit us. But if you're not in the area, please go to OurSundaySchool.com to see all of the resources we saw in class. Well, good morning, and welcome to Our Sunday School. I'm glad you're able to join us this morning. I see uh, quite a few of our, quite a few of you have already uh, greeted each other this morning on Facebook, so I appreciate that. And uh, if you got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 9, uh, starting a new section today. So we'll start with verse 14, and I'll uh, read all of Mark chapter 9 here in just a minute. But uh, go ahead and grab your Bible, if you would. And if you want to go to OurSundaySchool.com, you can grab today's handout. Uh, might be very helpful. It'll be the same handout, Lord willing, for this week, next week, and probably the week after. Uh, I put a question mark in the upper right-hand corner for as far as the date uh, and as far as the week. So we'll go until we're done with this section, and then we'll get a new handout and go from there. Uh, but uh, as we do each week, uh, I want to start with our question that we ask, uh, what is God doing in you through His Word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? And I'll share mine today, and if you guys want to type yours out in the comments, if you that'd be great. Uh, but mine is just a reflection of the sovereignty of God and how uh, all-powerful and knowing and um, just all-comprehensive He is in the scope of His plan, not just for uh, the life of Jesus Christ here on earth, but uh, for us and how we engage with that, how He sets up all of these different uh, situations and scenarios so that we can, one, learn more about Christ and how to obey and follow Him uh, more closely, but two, learn more about ourselves and where our shortfalls are so that we can see ourselves in the lives of the apostles and then understand how we are to repent and uh, believe again in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So just this overwhelming sense of God's sovereignty uh, and how he is in control and in charge. There is, there is not a second where he is not in charge, and it, bring, it brings to me a great sense of peace and comfort uh, so that I can then not stress and be anxious about my life and my concerns, but can rather focus on the Lord and see what he is up to and how we can then fit in with that. So what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we've studied so far? While you guys are thinking about that and maybe typing those in, I'll greet you guys this morning. So uh, good morning to the Arnolds and the Greggs in North Carolina. Good morning, guys, and to your church that is there as well. Uh, the Janikas, hey, good morning. The Landers, uh, the Clicks, the Velosins. Uh, hey, uh, Amy, tell Jay congrats on that big win the other night. So uh, go team. Um, good morning to the Johnsons and uh, then Miss Cheryl. Yes, uh, our, our prayers have been with you guys this week um, and uh, love you guys very much. And uh, just know that uh, this morning is a, a beautiful, beautiful day in heaven. And I uh, can't, can't wait to see Miss Wanda there again. And uh, our love and, and prayers and support are with you guys. So um, appreciate you guys being with us this morning. Uh, again, we are in Mark chapter 9 this morning. And just, you know, as we, Bible, Bible study is asking a series of questions and then responding to questions. And the question that I have written on your handout there at the top is, are there any literary or structural observations? And this is one that <clears throat> many times we just kind of move through pretty quickly, but I want us to see the order in which Mark has laid things out for us today. Because the, the verses right before our passage today in 14 uh, are really instructive as to what 
Jesus was just asked and what the disciples are struggling with and then what they see him do next. So I want us to, to really be thinking through, um, could Jesus have done this on purpose, this ordering, this structuring of what occurred here? And my argument to that is always going to be yes. Every aspect of everything that God does is good and right and holy and perfect in all its ways. And that goes for the events as well as the sequencing of the events. So let's read uh, Mark chapter 9, and uh, then we will start looking at verses uh, 14 and following this morning. <clears throat> Mark 9. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus, 
took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. John said to him, Teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, Do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung about his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. <clears throat> so while you're looking at Mark chapter 9, go back to verses uh, verse 9 here, because at the end of verse, at the end of chapter 8, Jesus begins to tell in verse uh, uh, 31, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So he, he begins to teach this to his disciples. And then in verse 9 of chapter 9, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they'd seen until they had seen the Son of Man risen from the dead. And they questioned what this rising from the dead might mean. And they started to ask him questions about these events that were to lead up immediately before this, the end of things as the Jews understood them. So right after this, this teaching about rising from the dead, right after these questions from rising of the dead, we have this account of Jesus in the ESV. It titles it, Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. So verses 14 through 29 and then immediately in verse 30, we go right back to Jesus teaching his disciples that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying. And, and you might get the sense that this is somehow out of order, and it is not. So I want us to think for just a second, and I, I tee this up a little bit in the introduction, 
but I want us to think for just a second about the intentionality of Jesus' actions as it pertains to what he was teaching. So we hear sometimes, you know, your your talk and your walk should be aligned. You got to talk the talk and walk the walk. Well, Jesus, even in his walk, even in his actions, was reinforcing what he was teaching the disciples. One of the ways to teach someone is to explain what you want them to learn, show them what you want them to learn, and then explain it again. And Jesus does this many, many times throughout the Gospels. You can read uh, virtually any of the Gospels and see this multiple times all the way through. This this beautiful repetition of Jesus in a variety of modalities so that the disciples would understand what he was actually doing. So with, with that as a backdrop, I have shown you all of my cards on what I believe 14 through 29 is actually teaching. It's a, it's a visual about Jesus rising again. It's a reinforcement of this theological point. So let's go ahead and uh, take a look at uh, starting in verse 14. Now, I will tell you in this section of Scripture, there are a lot of pronouns. And for the vast majority of them, it's pretty easy to tell who, we're, who Mark is referring to. For a couple of them, it is difficult until we get a little later on into the text. So I'm going to, as we walk through, I'm going to try to uh, clarify who the pronouns are actually referring to. So verse 14. And when they came, so they is the people who were in uh, verses 2 through uh, 13. Uh, they is Jesus, Peter, James, and John. When they came to the disciples. Now, these are the, the other disciples, right? Because Jesus has called specifically 12 to him. So these are the other nine that Jesus uh, left back. Uh, because not everybody gets to be included on everything. I don't know if I mentioned this during the 2 through 9 uh, section, but if... If God chooses to include us in a portion of what he is doing, that is his sovereign choice. If he, if he chooses not to include us in a portion of what he is doing, that is his sovereign choice. It is, it is not up to the subjects to be offended at how the master uses them. It is up to the subjects to be grateful that the master uses them at all. So uh, they, they go back to the disciples and they came to the disciples. They saw a great crowd around them. So this is the other disciples. So they've got the other disciples in the middle and a great crowd around them. And scribes arguing, and this is a present active participle, so we, we can assume that they've been at this for a minute. Scribes arguing with them. Now, this particular them doesn't make it really clear whether the scribes are arguing with the crowd or with the disciples. We think it's with the disciples based on a couple of things that happen a little later on. So verse 15, and immediately... All the crowd, when they saw him. So who would the him be? Who would the him be that perhaps the crowd came to go see when they sought out Jesus' disciples? The him is Jesus here, right? So immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed. And this word is shown up, uh, shows up several times later on in uh, Mark's gospel. And it's one that we'll focus on a lot when we get to Mark chapter 16, there's some beautiful references in 16 verse 5 and verse 6. Uh, it's one of my favorite words in Mark chapter 16. Uh, so they were greatly amazed and ran up to him. So we're, we're going to pause here for just a second. And we need, we need to talk about uh, Jewish culture and what you did and did not do. So one of the things that you didn't do, because it was a very shame-based culture, right? This was not a... Um, 
you would get shamed if you did certain things or if you didn't do certain things and, and honor and shame. It was just intimately wrapped around uh, this culture. And, and one of the things that, that Jewish men certainly didn't do is they didn't ever run. This was not something that a, a noble, honorable, upright person would do. This would imply sloppiness. This would imply you hadn't planned. This would imply that there was something worth running to. I mean, you just, you just didn't run. So when the text says they were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him, don't miss the cultural uh, kind of wrenching against what the norm was here. This was this would not have been normal for this time. Uh, so <clears throat> the other thing is that I want you to notice the word ran only shows up twice in Mark's gospel. This word for ran, uh, postreco. It shows up here, and then it shows up in chapter 10, verse 17. I want to flip over a page and look at chapter 10, verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher. So again, we see this word teacher. So the word ran and teacher are combined here, and Mark uses them again because the man that speaks out from the crowd here in verse uh, in. Uh, Mark chapter 9 also refers to Jesus as a teacher. So these words are kind of connected here in Mark's gospel. So this crowd uh, is greatly amazed. They ran up to him and greeted him. Now th this word greeted uh, can mean several different things. I've actually highlighted the definitions on your handout. So it can mean to enfold in the arms, which has got to be the fanciest way ever to say hug, right? It's just <laughs> one of the things I... I get tickled sometimes about Dr. Strong's definitions of words because it's just, you, you could have said hug, Doc. It would have been okay. Uh, but to enfold in the arms, uh, it could be to salute. So to salute, to salute, uh, to, to recognize somehow, or just in general to welcome. Uh, this word shows up one other time in Mark's gospel, in Mark chapter 15, verse 18. I would argue it's a different definition here, just given the context. In verse 16 in uh, chapter 15, it says, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace that is in the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews. Now, this we understand to be clear mockery. This is not a, we salute you as a king, as a, as a soldier would salute his king. No, 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 no. This, this is a mockery of uh, the concept of saluting. And we don't get any of that flavor here in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, this is a, like, we're glad to see you. This is good. You're here. I, I would argue it's probably some combination of the first definition and, and this, this welcome kind of concept, right? So they, they ran up to him. They're breaking these cultural norms. They greeted him. And then verse 16, the master teacher is on display in verse 16. And he asked, this is Jesus, asked them. We assume this is the crowd because the crowd responded. Asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, Jesus might have asked his disciples this question. We're not a thousand percent sure on this. But we do know the crowd answered. So there is that. So he said, what are you arguing? And this is the same word that we saw back in verse 14 when Jesus uh, saw them uh, from a distance and saw them arguing. So what are you arguing about with them? 
So why would Jesus care? Why would Jesus care that his disciples were arguing with somebody or a group of somebody's or multiple groups of somebody's or a crowd of somebody? Why, why would he care? Whose responsibility were they? They were his responsibility. And if they're getting into it with somebody, that's a reflection of him, right? So what are you arguing with them about? And, and I love this, uh, verse 17, and someone from the crowd, <clears throat> this is uh, like Dr. Luke would have just bristled at this level of vagueness. <laughs> but Mark is like somebody from the crowd, right? Uh, somebody from the crowd answered. Now, <clears throat> the answer, and, and the word is answer, it's to respond, uh, to begin to speak, to conclude for oneself. This is, the, this is the word that you would use when somebody asks you a question, this is what comes out of your mouth. So the speaker of what's about to happen in 17 through 19 truly believes this is the answer to Jesus' question. And the answer revolves around this devilish spirit that has afflicted this young boy with a condition. Okay, so that's the setting that we're about to go into. So this speaker believes he is answering Jesus' question of what are you arguing about? So here we go. He answered him and he said, teacher. Now, this is a respectful greeting for a rabbi. This is not a disrespectful. This is not flippant. This is not, uh, hey, you. This is, this is an appropriate uh, title. Uh, so he says, teacher. But I also want you to know that this is not a faith-filled title. He, he did not say, Lord. He did not say, my master. He did not say, uh, my savior. He did not say, my God, right? This is not Thomas's uh, confession of Christ after he sees his uh, wounds in his hands and his side when he falls on his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. This is, this is just addressing him by his title, right? So he says, teacher, I brought my son to, what's the next word? To you, singular. So the implication here is that, that this man came looking for Jesus, right? Because he brought his son to you. He didn't find Jesus. He found his disciples. And this is part of the problem, is that he didn't find who he was looking for, and who he wasn't looking for wasn't ultimately able to answer his question and resolve the issue with his son. So I brought my son to you, for he has, and this is a present act of participles. This is a, a pattern of this in this man's life, in this young man's life. <clears throat> he has a spirit, and then the ESV says that makes him mute. And it's a, um, the, the phrase that makes him is not present in the original. It's just a spirit mute. And the, the word for spirit is the same word for spirit all throughout the New Testament. It's pneuma. Uh, this is the word for uh, the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's the word for uh, the spirit inside of a man. It's the word for uh, breath. Uh, sometimes it's the word for uh, a wind uh, or a breeze. Um, but it's just a normal word for spirit. But the, the adjective that goes with this noun matters. Like it's incredibly important. So uh, many times you'll see an unclean spirit. And this is, this is an identification that this is 
a spirit that is not on uh, the side of Jesus Christ, that is on the side of uh, the devil or Satan. And here we just see uh, alalos. Uh, it's the Greek word for mute. Um, and if you if you know a little about Greek, then you ever see the word a, the letter a, on the front of a word, it means the opposite of whatever comes next. So the idea is uh, this is the opposite of lalos. And laleo is the one of the words that just means to speak. Uh, another word that means to speak is logos. Uh, to, you could put logos as a verb and make it uh, to be, I was saying this thing, or laleo as a verb, and it means to say this thing. So this is somebody who, ah, laleo, I was not able to speak. And this man attributes this inability to speak to a spirit that had done something to this particular child. So this is our setting. This is kind of what's going on, but he doesn't stop there. He wants to give him a bit of a history. Now, who do you give a history to? In our culture, you give a history to a doctor before the doctor does anything to you because you want to make sure the doctor fully understands all of what's going on so that the doctor can respond accordingly, right? So he continues in verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, katalambano, uh, it's a fun word to say. It sounds like uh, something that you would see on that uh, Disney movie Moana. Katalambano. Uh, uh, to take, look at the definition, to take eagerly. And I, I want you to notice this for just a second, that the devil's spirits eagerly engage in the destruction and defacement of the image of God. This is not something they do unwillingly. This is not something they do uh, with no enjoyment. This is something they do eagerly. And, and this is what happens when we say uh, no to what the Scripture dictates and say, no, no, I'll, I'll go another way. I'll do something different. Well, there's only two spiritual daddies you can have. One is God. The other is the devil. And a rejection of God is an acceptance of the devil. So when we reject his word, we enter into a space that contains beings that enjoy defacing the image of God. That's how much they hate God. So it, it seizes, it possesses him, and it throws him down, the ESV says. Now, the word down is not in the Greek in the uh, original, but this word for throws, it's got a couple different definitions here. I'll, I'll, we'll walk through uh, these, and you think through which one you think might be most applicable here. First definition is to break, to wreck, or to crack. Uh, second is to sunder. This means to, to rip apart, to tear, the separation of the parts, or disrupt or lacerate. Uh, the third means to convulse with spasms. And then the fourth is to give vent to joyful emotions. So if you, if you had to pick one of those four that you go, I don't, I'm not a thousand percent sure that's probably the right uh, definition to use for this particular instance. Yeah, it's it's not to give vent to joyful emotions, right? This demon is not seizing this young person for the purpose of giving vent to joyful emotions. So we can look, look at that definition and go, not the right time to use that. Uh, this word is used one other time in Mark's gospel, though. If you go back to Mark chapter 2, verse 22... 
Mark chapter 2, verse 22. And this is the, in the section about the questioning about fasting. Uh, and see if you can find out, I'm, I'm just going to give you a second to read through Mark 2, 22. And where is the word throws? And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So where is the word for throws? You're like, wait, I didn't hear a throws in there. Let me read it again. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed. And so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. It's the word burst. This idea that it's going to break something, something that is not intended to be contained within something else. To don't miss what Mark is doing by using this particular word here. Mark is letting us know when you put something inside something else that it's not supposed to be there, bad things happen, right? This, this demon throws him. He bursts him. Something that's not supposed to be there. The, the design that God has for human beings is not for us to be possessed by demons. That is not his design. So make sure we get that really clearly here. <clears throat> so verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. And we, as 21st century Americans, would look at this and go, this sounds a lot like a seizure. Yeah, actually one of the words to, uh, to for foam is to froth at the mouth. One of the definitions for foam is to froth at the mouth as in epilepsy, right? This is... This is, a, this is a really bad thing that's happening here. And he grinds his teeth. I don't know if you've been around anybody that, that, that grind their teeth, but uh, my wife tells me that I do it at night sometimes, uh, sleeping. And I don't know. I don't hear it, right? And I would imagine this, this kid in the middle of one of these episodes probably is not hearing this either. Right? This is something that just impacts everybody else around you. It's awful. He grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid, um, this is a, um, a very interesting word. It, it has a tremendously broad set of definitions, uh, but I want you to look at the, the verb parsing here. It's present passive indicative, and the passive means it happens to the subject. So he becomes rigid. So it is, it is put on him that he becomes rigid. Definition means to make dry, to wither, to waste away. Uh, and then there's a definition of fully ripe and mature. Well, we don't, like this is, this is not the time to use that particular definition. Um, this word shows up several times in Mark's gospel. First in 3.1, uh, when Jesus entered the synagogue and a man was there with a withered hand, very very similar type of a concept that this thing is not working as it should. In 4.6, and when the sun rose, it was scorched. And since it had no root, it withered away. This is part of the parable of the sower. So something that is that is not doing what it is designed to do. Uh, 529 is the next instance here. Uh, and immediately, this is the woman with the issue of blood, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. This is after she had touched his garment. 
uh, and felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. So this is something that was that was wrong, that has stopped. It has, it has ceased being wrong. Then we see the 918 uh, that we see in this text that we're studying today. Uh, 1120, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. This is the tree that Jesus had cursed the day before. Uh, so this idea that something is is not right with the way this uh, this works. So this this word has this understanding of something's broken, something's not operating the, the way it's supposed to operate. And again, when we take the truths of God's word and we reject what God is teaching, the way that he has gone, we are accepting anything else. And all the anything else is governed by the devil. Um, and this is the devil's design for us, that he mar the image of God, that it be broken from the inside out, that it be withered away, that it not function as it should, that it be an annoyance, this grinding to people around us. None of this is normal. And all of this is a picture of a life not as it should be. So don't miss that. So he goes on. This is the Father speaking here. So I asked your disciples. He's getting pointed here. And then there's a, there's a word that's in the Greek that's not in the English translations. Uh, hina. This is the in order that. He, he asked this question for a purpose. In order that uh, they cast it out. The ekbalo. They eject this thing. Like get, get this out of here. This is not good. And they were not able. They were not able. Now, the, the typical word for able or ability or power to do something in the Gospels is the Greek word dunamis. You guys are all familiar with this. This is the uh, described many times as the dynamite power of the New Testament. Uh, the New Testament knew nothing of dynamite, so this was not dynamite power to them. This is the way we understand this word, so don't like retroactive, retroactively put that definition back into the New Testament. Dynamite didn't exist then, so be careful with that. Um, but they were not able. This is a skuo. Um, this is to have the strength or the force to be able to do something. In Mark 2.17, this word is translated well, as in whole, as in uh, not sick. In 5.4, this word is translated as strength. This is the having the strength or the ability to do something. And then in 1437, it's, it's defined as could. It's used as, it's translated as the word could do something here. So the, the idea here is that the disciples were not able to do this. They didn't, they weren't well enough or they weren't strong enough or they just couldn't do it. And once again, I want us to make sure we see the distinction between the one, the son, the man, Jesus Christ, and everybody else. We've seen this distinction that Jesus makes between himself and John, between himself and Herod, between himself and the religious elite of the day. And now this man, this someone from the crowd is making this distinction between Jesus and his followers. And for me, it's just a great reminder that I'm not Jesus and I'm not supposed to be. And there's going to be things that that I can't do, that only he can. And when I position myself to believe that I can actually do what only he can do, I'm frustrated because I'm not God. And that's okay because there's only one Jesus Christ. And we are grateful for that. 
We are beyond excited for that. And next week, Lord willing, we'll pick up with verse 19 and walk through uh, how Jesus responds to this argument, to this man from the crowd talking about his son. So with that, we'll finish our lesson uh, for there today, right there today. And if you would like to um, go to OurSundaySchool.com, you can find out more about how to subscribe to our weekly email, to our YouTube, to our podcast. Uh, you can also go and learn more about how to be a member of our Sunday school. If you want to be a member of our Sunday school, it's super simple. Uh, on the About Us tab, there's a video to watch. Watch that video. Uh, if you want to commit to those membership expectations, we would love to have you be a member of our Sunday school. There's some benefits that go along with that, and you can find out all about those in that video. And then we'll end today with our request for uh, prayer requests. So if you've got any prayer requests, we obviously know one already. Be in prayer for uh, Cheryl's family. Uh, through the loss of her mom uh, this past week. And uh, if you got any other prayer requests, make sure you write those down. We'd love to pray for those. Uh, I'd love for you to take a minute before we transition into the next part of your day and pray for somebody, preferably somebody that's that's uh, greeted you this morning and uh, pray for somebody that's not with you. And then uh, find a way to engage in a worship service today, whether that be in person or whether that be online. We would love to invite you to engage with us in worship because there is only one worthy of worship, right? The father put Moses and Elijah on the chessboard and then took them off and Jesus was the only one that was left. And this father in the text in Mark chapter nine recognized the disciples weren't like Jesus. So there is only one worthy of our worship and we should worship him wholeheartedly. So with that, We'll finish the lesson for today. Look forward to seeing you, Lord willing, next week. And uh, we'll pick up with uh, Mark 9, verse 19. So until then, grace and peace with you. I'm praying for you guys. I love you guys, and I miss you terribly. Hope to see you soon. Thanks. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and to our weekly email. You can do both at OurSundaySchool.com.